VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Flying with only two of us today because someone's sick. Well, that would be me, but I made it here. Joanna. No, don't shame her. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, she has a sick a sick child at home, too. No, she's which, sick, too. Yeah. yeah. Double, I, I, double I have <laughs> children who got me sick and then got better, and they're off at school, and I am home podcasting and uh, just consuming so much honey in all forms. It's really... It's not bad, honey, but... Huh? That's your thing? Well, well, you know, there's like... A, it's good for the throat, and when you got to talk into a microphone for a while... Uh, you need to do what you can. I mean, fortunately, I got to be honest, Adam. It's it's nice, uh, nice having you back because I can let you, uh, you know, take the reins a little bit more. Yeah, you're welcome. You're so. welcome. Here we go. Please uh, make sure your uh, tray table is in its uh, <laughs> locked, upright, and locked position. Yeah, yeah that's right. Ready to go. Uh, so, what have you read on the site recently that you've uh, been really into that others should check out? Yeah, you know, there have been two, well, there have been a you know, number of things as always, but I, I do I do want to say, you know, I enjoyed um, a recent piece from uh, John Sumner's about, um, you know, he, as, as he kind of frames it or as the headline frames it, you know, these wines in tall, skinny bottles. And it's interesting because the piece itself is great, talks a lot about aromatic whites, Riesling in particular, why certain sommeliers really enjoy them. But, but actually, it made me think a little bit about that bottle shape and why I think it I think it's like it could it could perhaps be it could have a moment. I mean, the wine inside it may be challenging for some people, depending on their feelings towards aromatic whites generally. Mm-hmm. But it's so striking, especially you know even in a seven fifty, but e- but even more so in a in a magnum size or something like that, because it's just so tall and looks really striking when put next to other wine bottles. And so much now, well, not so much, but there's an element of what makes a wine popular, what makes a wine trendy that I think does kind of revolve around what it looks like, uh, you know, on social and stuff like that. And I don't know, it just was kind of an interesting thing to think about a little bit, something to kind of take note of. And then, um, you know, she's not here, but I I will say that Joanna's recent Ask Joanna piece about uh, how do we pick a wine if there's no information on the label was was good, because I actually think this is a, a growing problem with wine where figuring out even you know, anything beyond the sort of legally mandated information, which I don't know that it necessarily gives you a great idea about the wine, uh, is kind of, you know, it's kind of frustrating sometimes to pick up a bottle yeah. or look at a bottle and say, like, I have no idea perhaps where this is from, uh, what grapes are in it, maybe even who made it exactly. So, yeah, that was, a, a I thought, a, a well-reasoned answer of a, a, a growing and more tricky problem. How about you? Um, well, I really enjoyed the VP Pro article this week, this past week on how Modelo Especial came to be America's new everyday beer. I think, you know, obviously we, what I think is interesting is that, you know, there was a lot of people are very quick to be like, oh, the only reason this happened was because of sort of everything that befell Bud Light over (laughs) this early summer. But actually like when talking to uh, analysts who had been looking at the market for, the past few years, especially ever since COVID, they were all commenting on how the how like basically Modelo was growing by twenty percent almost every single year while Bud Light was contracting, and it like it had been predicted that it was going to catch and pass Bud Light by like twenty twenty five, and all what happened this summer did is just hasten that. Um, but you know, I think one of the things that they've talked about that they talk about in the article, Jared talks about in the article, Gerard, sorry. 
talking about the article is also interesting is that like Modelo has figured out how to position itself via constellation, not as just like the beach Mexican lager, which Corona has done really, really well, but like literally the the lager for every single occasion. And he sort of says that like imports for the longest time had been pigeonholed in Amer- in the American consciousness. And like why domestic has been so big is that domestic lagers really were good at being like the alcohol for all. Anytime you wanted it, right? If you if you needed a beer, Bud Light was there, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it was a backyard barbecue, whether it was like Thanksgiving dinner, whatever, like you wanted a beer, Bud Light was there. And then specific occasions were given to imports, right? So Heineken was like the you know fancier, trendier, uh, high energy nightlife beer. Uh, Stella was like positioned itself as like the truly like high end import beer. Guinness was the beer for the bar. Right. Mm-hmm. So like when you're going to like the nice to the pub is basically as he says it. Right. And Corona was the beer for the beach. And Modelo has really flipped the script and said, like, we're not going to be pigeonholed as this one occasion style import. Import is going to benefit us. We're going to be proudly Mexican, but we are also going to be Mexican for the every day and for the every person. And I think that that's, you know, just really benefited its rise. And now, yeah, I mean, it is true. Almost Every time I'm out with people, if if people are going to drink a, it's funny to say now, like a, a macro lager, the default at this point with most people I know is Modelo. Yeah. Um, well, and it, it points out that, you know, in a lot of ways, the distinction of import versus domestic is a little, it's a little sillier when you're talking about a Mexican beer where, you know, some of the reasons why imports have more cachet and often cost a little more is because of the transatlantic shipping and things like that. And less of an issue when being shipped up from Mexico or made here, perhaps. Uh, but I also think it's really interesting because, you know, as you were, as you mentioned, we were talking about this on the podcast uh, about a year ago now. And it, even though the you're right that the like pithy sort of one sentence uh, explanation is like, well, Bud Light uh, keeps eating shit, and that's why Medela passed them, like as is noted in the piece, as you noted just a moment ago, mm-hmm. this was going to happen. It was just a matter of when, not if. Yeah. And it's wild. Yeah, right. I, I mean, and and how, you know, I think it's it's cited in a piece here in, in a decade ago, you know, Bud Light was selling like almost six times as much beer as Modelo Especial. And it's now, you know, Modelo Especial is now outselling it. That is, that is wild. Mm-hmm. Crazy. So I thought today we'd have a fun discussion uh, about uh, a, a, a kind of wine service that has become more popular over the past, I'd say, five years, maybe more. I mean, I know there there were definitely places in New York that were doing it, you know, seven, eight years ago. So I'm not going to say it's a new type of wine service, but it's definitely becoming more and more, um, you know, I want to say there's more, more, more and more people doing it, uh, mm-hmm. more and more regular. But uh, basically what I'm talking about is so – Actually, this this past weekend, I was down in Puerto Rico um, for Tim McCurdy, host of Cocktail Co- Wine Fish Cocktail College, and also our managing editor's wedding. And uh, the night before the wedding, myself, Naomi, Josh, Keith, and his wife Gina, we all went to a really cool uh, wine bar down there called Celeste, which has only been open for uh, less than a year. It was an incredible experience, like amazing restaurant. Um, I was very impressed. Opened by a um, Puerto Rican American, you know, Puerto Rican, not Puerto Rican American. All, all Puerto Ricans are American. Um, a Puerto Rican who had spent most of his culinary career 
in the States, in New York, in Boston, opening restaurants. He was a beverage professional. Super cool. Um, Sebastian. And he basically practiced a style of service in the restaurant. Now, it was small that I'm talking about, which is that when we sat down, he came over to the table and said, you know, what kind of wine are you in the mood for right now? So when we first sat down, we were like, oh, we want to start with bubbly. And he's like, okay, cool. And then he just went to his wine, you know, fridge, wine storage unit, and came back with like seven bubblies, put them on the table, and like explained each, and then was like, which one do you want me to pop, basically? And I've seen this style of service happening a bunch recently at places that are trying to to come off as more casual. And in a lot of ways, I find it really refreshing, right? Like it's almost like you're going into a wine shop. Like they come over, they just start chatting you about wine. They they really like break down a lot of barriers uh, with the wine. And I'm someone that likes to have a conversation. So it was really fun to like pick the fun bottle with him and, you know, say, oh, I'm going to pop it. Like if you don't like it, you know, and I pop it, I'm happy to sell by the glass. I'll, I'll pop one of the other bottles that I brought over here. I think it's also interesting for the restaurant tour because they can kind of control what they're pushing that night, mm-hmm. right? So, like, if he wants to push these seven bubblies, like, these are the seven bubblies he can push. He could also maybe have only had these seven bubblies on his list. I have no idea because I never saw a wine list. I don't think it exists. Um, and I thought it was fun throughout the night to, like, you know, mess around doing that. There was seven of us total for dinner. I think when I'm ordering four bottles of wine. So this happened on four different occasions. The next time we ordered – you know, we, we wanted a, a really great white, and we wound up with a, um, you know, a, a Chardonnay from France. Then the next time we wanted, like, a light red, we wound up with a really cool wine from the Languedoc. And then the final time, we wanted another light red, and we wound up with, like, a really delicious wine from uh, Spain. And from, I think, from Amencia. So, like, all these really cool experiences, right? Um, but then when we left, I remember, you know, I picked up the bill. You know, we, we picked up the bill. We... We left, and I remember Naomi saying to me, did you know how much each of those bottles was when you were, like, going through it with him? And I was like, no. <laughs> I actually didn't. And I was, like, kind of just trusting that the wines were all affordable. And there were a few wines on the table that he had said were cult, which, I mean, cult such BS because it's only cult to, like, a very few people in the industry usually. But, like, some of those cult wines, I remember Keith looked up when he'd walked away from the table, and we were like, oh, these, these are kind of expensive. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, it was this weird experience where I really enjoyed it a lot, but I also can see how, as a consumer, it could be even more intimidating the wine list because you really don't know what the price is. Yeah. It's also kind of difficult on the service side to find a way to kind of work that into the conversation without it being too overt. You know, it's really interesting. I used to do a little bit of a version of this sometimes with with tables where when I had time and or they kind of really wanted to talk about a few bottles, especially if they were, you know, sort of a little all over the place with what they were looking for. And sometimes just having the the visual indicator or the sort of physical presence of the bottle or bottles on the table helped people kind of like understand maybe what they were looking for. And I definitely agree that it's an easier way to kind of converse about wine than specifically or than simply just being like, here is the list. I will tell you some things about it or I will recommend three bottles off the list and hopefully you can find them on there and understand what I'm talking about. So, like, I totally get it. And I think that there is a lot of benefit to that kind of service. But I also agree that the whether intentional or not, the obfuscation of price is kind of it makes things awkward and talking about price with with food and wine is always a little bit awkward, which is why most of the time with men, you know, we have menus, right? So that 
the person can make a purchasing decision with price as a part of the consideration without having to be like, and how much does that cost? And how much does that cost? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, that doesn't feel great. You know, most people are not comfortable bringing that up all the time, but also most people are in a position where they want to make some kind of informed decision. And part of that information they need is the price. So I don't know. I, I really, like I said, I think there are a lot, there are more positives and negatives about this style of service. It's just a matter of finding ways to gracefully handle that question. And I don't know if it's as simple as, you know, maybe, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe you could have, you could find a way to mention it when you're talking about the wines, but again, that might feel kind of awkward. I've seen, I think like you could do a thing where maybe you kind of arrange the wines almost in price order, the same way that you do with some people do on a wine list uh, in a written form. But again, it's still, it's still just kind of, you know, I don't know. It maybe robs the, the experience of a little bit of the magic. I think the only way you can do this kind of service is, I think there's two ways. I think one way is what you're saying, which is like you, you as the, you know, owner, some or server have to say, hey, I'm going to, you know, so what do you want? Blah, blah, blah. Cool. What price range are you comfortable with? Are you comfortable with under set, you know, under 100, under 200, whatever? Cool. I'm going to bring you a bunch of bottles in that range. Or it kind of has to be like the in, inside the ethos of the restaurant, like the all the wines all, that we will ever bring you are always under 100 bucks or something, which I get, you know, kind of ties a restaurant's hands behind its back if they want to have a really fun bottle but like maybe for a regular they still have those more expensive bottles where they say hey you know you've come in and had a bunch of the fun wines here we actually had this, this really special bottle if you want but but it's 250 or something right yeah um i think that's when this can work because then if you walk in you're like okay like i'm i'm comfortable i'm never gonna see a bottle more than 75 bucks or something then maybe it makes you uh feel more comfortable or there's a spot in i think dc um, I believe it's called like Wine Picnic or something. I could be completely getting the name wrong, so don't blast me. But I think someone actually who listens to the podcast told me about it. Uh, and I went up just looking at their wine list. I've never been before. But I think their whole thing is every single bottle on their list is the same price. Mm. Um, so I'm sure what they're doing is that some of their bottles are marked up and some of them are cheaper, right? Because there's just yeah. no way in the world of wine that every bottle could be priced at 65 bucks or whatever. But again, at least that way, you could come to someone's table with, you know, a lineup of wines and they know, okay, now I'm basically just going off of what sounds the most interesting to me as opposed to also worrying about the price, which I like as well, but that's very difficult to do in a world where, again, you really have to be willing to play with price and hope the person doesn't realize that the bottle they're buying for 65 bucks everywhere else costs 45 bucks or something. Yeah. Right? Um, or doesn't have a problem with that because they appreciate the experience you were providing where they could have gotten a deal because you're also selling a $65 wine that normally sells for 80 or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's it's interesting. It does seem to be though, you know, a new trend. And I think, look, anything where 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 people are trying to do things that make wine seem less intimidating and can compete against, you know, everyone feeling like they need to order cocktails instead, I'm all for. Um, so I, I really don't want to like overly pick this apart because I do think that it's you know it's a it, it felt more fun and more accessible than a traditional wine list for sure. And it has, but like, you know, there's just definitely things that you got to think about because wine is still this thing that I think the majority of consumers often feel like they're getting ripped off by. Yeah. Well, and I actually think even beyond, 
necessarily just making people feel more comfortable with sort of wine as a category. There's another benefit here that I was thinking about, which is, you know, to build a wine list in 2023 that isn't just sort of only the most classic wines and therefore likely to be relatively expensive. To build a wine list that's interesting, that has more affordable bottles, you're often having to pick from uh, regions, countries, varieties, etc. that are not as well known to the average wine consumer or restaurant goer. And just kind of throwing those bottles on a list and saying, handing it to the guest and saying, here, you know, have at it is going to push a lot of those people to the wines that they are familiar with because not everyone is interested in or comfortable with starting a conversation with their server, the psalm, the owner, the manager, whomever about wine. And if they're not comfortable with that, they're probably just going to avoid it. And they might avoid it, as you described, by choosing cocktails or something else. Or they might, again, pick a bottle of a thing that they are familiar with. And this kind of service where you both take that option off the table for someone in a way, but also... I guess to make a pun, put a lot of other wines on the table for them and and kind of put them all out there, give them their due. You know, the, the sommelier, the server, the whomever can speak about them with some, hopefully some insight and eloquence and maybe some passion. And you never know, someone who has never heard of a, you know, didn't even know that they made wine in, I don't know, uh, Turkey or in uh, you know, well, like whatever. I'm not going to name a bunch of obscure wine regions, but the point is, someone could end up with a bottle that they really enjoy from a place or a grape that they've never heard of or are unfamiliar with, in a way that doesn't feel like, well, I chose that because it was the cheapest bottle. It's yeah. like, yeah, the, the server talked about it, they explained why it was a you know maybe a, a good option for what we were eating or the mood we were mm-hmm. in or kind of how we were doing things. And again, I think you're right that anything that creates that sense of what wine can and does do really well at the table, this sort of like enhancement of an experience, this thing that is shared. And again, I think, you know, this is something because I've been reflecting about this a lot, because as mentioned on the podcast uh, last week, I have a piece coming out on the site relatively soon that addresses what the uh, some of these issues in a way. And if there but one of the things I've many been... edits we needed to make to it, it would come out sooner. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said last week. It's still true. <laughs> I'm working, folks. I'm working. Uh, keep going. Um, keep going. <laughs> but what I was going to say is that um, the thing about it is that what wine can do at a, in a in a dining experience is be a shared thing, and that's much yes. harder with cocktails and other in spirits and stuff like that. Yes, obviously people can order the same cocktail, but the sense of camaraderie and and um, shared experience is just different when you're sharing a bottle of wine I than with agree. any other drink. And, and and this format of service might make that kind of shared experience all the more appealing to people who might otherwise kind of just skip past wine or, or you know, not give it a, a chance in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for it. I think, I think that's a great point. I mean, part of what was great, you know, what's great about this style is that, you know, this became much more of a conversation with the table based on what we were presented than when one person – who gets to be deemed on that given night, right? The wine expert is handed the list and they kind of make a selection. They say, are you guys all good with this? You guys cool with this? Like, you know, uh, does, you know, this, does that Narosa sound cool? Cause like, I guess, you know, we all said light red. I'm like, I just, you know, that I think it is often, you know, fine and happens a lot of times, but this, you know, when, when the, when the server restaurateur, et cetera, brings over six to seven bottles and is talking about them, 
for everyone to hear, then if you want to pipe up, you can. Yeah. And I think that that's really cool. And as you said, like this doesn't really happen in the world of cocktails in the same way. Um, and yeah, you can share drinks too, but then like everyone winds up with COVID or RSV or whatever <laughs> the hell at the end of the night. You know what I'm saying? Uh, thanks a lot, Portland bachelor party. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really think that that's, uh, that's the deal. The other piece of this too, is that like, if you're in a situation like the one you were in where you're having multiple bottles of wine over the course of the night, hopefully, you know, the server or whoever the psalm is getting a better sense for your table. And, and maybe the second selection of wines they bring over is even more closely attuned to what you might be interested in. Maybe they've picked up that you guys are really interested in, you know, trying new things or conversely interested in classics or interested in uh, whatever. Like, it is a way to not just make each individual bottle sale a little more perhaps special and unique, but also the kind of broader and, you know, if it, if it is a larger group, you know, multi, multi-bottle experience, again, feel really dynamic. And again, dynamism is something that, that wine in particular in restaurant settings has really struggled with. So I, I am heavily in favor of anything that promotes that. Yeah. Um, well, let us know what you think. If you have you seen a really uh, cool and different uh, style of wine service recently that you think that we should know about, uh, or have you seen this style and you've also thought it was awesome, or you hated it? Uh, hit us up at podcastatvinepair dot com. We've been getting a lot of really great emails recently. Uh, always an awesome, uh, you know, topic to explore, especially as we continue the ongoing conversation that we've been having for at least the last two years about uh you know wines not demise but uh continued sort of battle with cocktails and and what it can do to continue to relate itself uh, and compete at the dining table uh zach as always great to to be with you though we miss joanna hope you feel better uh take a lot of uh flu medicine and we'll see you back here next week sounds great Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.